Parenting is fun. Anybody agree? You got kiddos at home. You feel like you get it all figured out, and then all of a sudden a new season erupts. You know, you go from the terrible twos or threes, and then they start growing into, uh, you know, like we got a 12-year-old who's about to be 13, and so you got the first middle school dances. Alexa, I see you over there. You know that feeling. I got some middle school boys here. Like, there's just different seasons, different stages with all of our kids. And right now, uh, the stage we find ourselves in is really fun. Brighton is the center of attention, all right? Like, if you come to our house, there's a good chance she's standing up on the counter where the TV is, listening to maybe Taylor Swift, that sister's playing, or maybe something, and she's, or maybe she came up with her own song, and she's just singing as loud as she can. Like, she demands the attention in the house. And sometimes she'll say, Dad, I want you to listen to my song. So I'll listen to her song, and the song just keeps going. So I'm doing things, and so I'm like, attention, and then bam, I'm, I start doing my things, and she'll come to me, and she says, I'm going to start that over, because you need to finish listening to my song, and she like demands that, listen to my song, one volume turned all the way up. Ellie, she's big right now with uh, like clothes, and she'll say things like, hey, how does this make me look? Always trying on new outfits, by the grace of God, her and mom are the same size, and so we save a lot of money, because they just share clothes. Uh, But she's in that stage where she's like, hey, how does this make me look? Hey, look, dad, dad, how does this make me look? Like, tell me what you think about how I look. Brighton's saying, listen to me, demanding that. Ellie's saying, hey, I need you to tell me how I look. And then Deacon, Deacon at any given day, you can find him and I throwing a football in the living room. Cody loves this. Uh, She's joking. She hates it. But we're throwing a football in the living room. And right now, like, every Every pass that I throw to Deacon, it's the last play of the game, and we're down by like six points, and we got to throw this, and it's not just throw like a curl route. He wants, Dad, I want to dive onto the couch, and so we're working on like these one-handed grabs as he lays out on the couch, and, and the reason is, is he's like, man, I'm, I want to be the hero of, of the game. Like every throw, it's the last play of the game, and if he misses it, he says, well, that was interference. You know, like he wants, let's just do it again until he catches it and he's the hero. The crowd goes wild, literally is what he says. The crowd goes wild. You know, he does that whole thing. I can remember as a kid, bottom of the ninth, two outs, bases loaded, down three runs. I never struck out, like when I was imagining this. Like anybody ever remember that? Bottom of the ninth, two outs. All right, I'm, I'm coming up to the plate. And I had the best record, like in my imagination, because I would do this just like what my kids do, or like specifically what Deacon does. I would do that, and I never struck out in my imagination. You know what I did every time? I hit a home run. Every time. And as I, in my mind, crossed home plate, what was everybody doing in the stands for me was cheering for me. Look what I just did. Look what I've done. As kids... It's easy for us to say, man, they want all the attention. They want all of the power. They want all of the approval. They want all of the glory. Now, if I'm honest with you, I try my best to be as transparent as I can. So if I'm being honest with you this morning, as an adult, there's something in my heart that is broken badly. It reminds me of a lot when I was a kid seeking that same glory. Now, I love Jesus deeply. Like, I I love him. I'm all about this grand adventure that he has called me to, this beautiful adventure he's called me on is, is so incredible. I love Jesus. 
Like when we sit here and sing about all of his promises are yes and amen, I'm like, yes, he's the only one that's never failed me. I love my bride. She's failed me. I love all of you. You've failed me. I have failed you. The only one who never has is Jesus Christ. And so I love singing about that and boasting in him. But at the same time, deep down in my soul, I possess this legitimate desire for glory hunger. Like, I know all glory. We've talked about that right brain, left brain. Like, left brain. I know all glory belongs to God. I know that any glory I receive is my creator's and not mine. I'm to reflect that back to him. But there's something in my heart where I find this crazy desire to be recognized and applauded. Maybe I'm the only one but maybe you feel that as well. So I, I think I can speak on, on behalf of most of, this, of us this morning that we work hard. You work hard in a job. You work hard to provide for your family. You work hard to do all these things. You even have some natural giftings that the Lord is giving you. And we want people. We want people so badly to notice and to say something if we're being honest about how awesome we are. And here's the thing about that desire. Truthfully, I hate it. I hate that desire. That, that this, I hate that that desire is even in my heart. Like I, I just live for people saying and applauding the work that I'm doing. I don't like having the desire to be glory hungry. And, and I'll, again, be honest, it varies with frequency and intensity. And over time... Through God's grace, I've been aware of this in my life. I can confess and I can repent of the times where it rules my heart. Like when I'm walking with the Lord and delighting in Him, I am well aware of my brokenness. When I'm walking with Him and I'm delighting in all of Him, I'm well aware just how fragile I am and how much God really doesn't need me for His kingdom. When I'm delighting in all of him, like I realize his kingdom doesn't rest on my shoulders. I'm really not that good, really not that gifted and that talented as if his kingdom's resting on my shoulders. But I also know as time has gone on, wisdom and life experience and brothers and sisters to speak truth, I know that sin is very sneaky. Like I know what the Bible says. Back to that left brain, I know what it says about, about being proud. John 3.30, don't know this verse, memorize this. He must increase and I must decrease. Like, I know that. Man, I can quote that to my kids. I can quote that to, in my youth ministry and in, in ministry with y'all. But I also know Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. Like, I know the results of pride. I hate that there is a war that regularly, regularly wages war in my soul to steal glory from God. Like, I hate that that's there. Like, I don't want that there. But the reality is, it's there. And when it shows up, it's self-exalting and God-belittling. 
Thankfully, again, through God's grace and through his word, people who know me, people who've spoken truth to me, I find myself in a good place in this season. I feel like I'm, I'm walking. I'm not walking on eggshells. Like I feel like I'm able to confess and to repent from these things. But I also know it won't be long before this particular idol surfaces back in my heart. And I'm going to need, again, the truth of the gospel and others who know me best to remind me that Jesus, Matt, Jesus must increase. You must decrease. And so this, this morning, we find ourselves at a pretty pivotal moment in the life of Gideon. We've been in the life of Gideon, the story of Gideon, the last two weeks. And the writer gives us this glimpse into his heart of this valiant warrior that God calls, named Gideon, whom God has called, whom God has appointed, who God has empowered as the leader, but even in the heart of God's leader. We're going to see that this darkness is exposed, little by little, and I think, we're, I think we'll be reminded of just how wretched our own hearts can be. If you think back to week one, that what I said early on about this whole idea, this whole cycle, if you will, of judges, that left went to our own doing, we can really mess some things up. So I think, big picture this morning, where I'm headed, it's possible to say that God is king and live like you are the king. We're going to see that over and over. And let's dig in. Let's see what the Spirit might have for us. Verse 1 through 3, I'm just going to kind of walk through this narrative. So, Again, if you're new, what's been happening over the last few weeks? Gideon's the youngest uh, of his family. He's also uh, one scared man from uh, the weakest tribe, if you will. That's who Gideon was. The youngest of his family, also his family's the weakest clan. Uh, and he's visited by the Lord at this time. And it's by the Lord that God calls him a valiant warrior. Gideon says, at that time, God says, you're a, a valiant warrior, Gideon looks at him and, and says, you're crazy, basically. This is Matt's paraphrase to catch you up to speed. You're crazy. Well, God looks at him and says, well, you're the man. Like, you're, you're it. Tag, you're it. And so Gideon asks for further clarity. Uh, we see some supernatural revelation from God to show up and to show off. Uh, it's not necessarily him testing the will of God. It's, it's the fleece, if you will. If you haven't been here, go back and read that story. It's a beautiful story, not of, of Gideon like, testing God's will, but saying, God, I need you to show up supernaturally in this moment for me. So it's less looking for a sign and more of begging God to reveal himself to Gideon. And so from there, God gives him a battle plan. He gives Gideon this plan and says, hey, here's how this is going to go down. Take down his numerous and powerful enemies. So what does Gideon do? He, he takes this battle plan. He goes and readies his 32,000 troops. And God says what? It's too many, 32,000. Still didn't even really match up to the Midianites, but it, it's too many. Gideon said, go home if you're scared. If you were here last week, uh, he said, go home if you're scared, if, you, if you're fearful of this. And what happens? 22,000 of them go home. So at this point, Gideon, the chosen leader from the weakest tribe and also the youngest, the most absolute terrible leader in the eyes of a warrior, God sends 22,000 of his troops home because they're scared. Gideon courageously takes a deep breath and says, let's do this. God says, there's still too many. And God tells him, watch them drink water. Separate those who lap water like a dog and those who kneel down. And 
We see in Judges 7, 7, the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you. Like this is key right here. 22,000 men go down. We're down to 10,000. Now God says, go and watch how they drink and then send everybody home who drinks in a certain way. Judges 7, 7, the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand hand the Midianites over to you, but everyone else must go home. So we're down to 300 soldiers. And it's here that God reminds Gideon of what he said back in chapter 6, because the the, victory has already been declared. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. He, he even generously gives him 300. Reminds Gideon early on in Judges 6, verse 16, that hey, I'm going to do this, and it's going to look like it's the power of one man. It's not going to make sense, but I'm going to do this. I will be with you. So keep that in mind. God's already declared along the way what he was going to do. Isn't God very patient in this? Over and over again, he's very gracious with Gideon through all of this. So much so that God even sends in chapter 8 or chapter 7, we see God even sends a dream to a stranger. This is what the dream says. Now a loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck a tent and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. What is this happening? Like what, I, I, I was serving in kids, and so I went back and listened last week to Pastor Ryan's sermon and just loved how he explained, like, like what... If, you, if this was you and somebody tells you this, and, and the bread, what is this? What is barley bread? Where it's supposed to knock down. It's supposed to defeat our enemies. In which a friend who's there to interpret the dream says this. This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. Once again, God is with him over and over again. And now we see it's time to attack. And big God things happen, just like he said would happen. Not by the sword of Gideon's men, but by their own sword. In verse 22 of Judges chapter 7, when Gideon's men blew their 300 rams, horns, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. And what happened? They fled. All of this done was done by Yahweh. In the end, none of Gideon's 300 men even killed any of the soldiers. None of them would have any reason to return home singing of their own glory. None of them. Instead, the glory would be God's. The Midianites fled and are met by the Ephraimites. Gideon has sent word in order to cut their enemies off. And that catches us up to chapter 8. I promise you the introduction was not another sermon. It's just important in context of just trying to understand and follow what is happening here. So in chapter 8, we see the Ephraimites are not happy with Gideon. Also, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, just to be very clear. So I'm just going to sell it like I know what I'm talking about. Martha asked me about names. I'm like, I don't know, just sell it. Whatever you say, I'll say. So the Ephraimites, they're not happy with Gideon. Gideon's confronted by the strongest and most powerful tribe here. And remember, Gideon's from the weakest it's like the rock standing next to Kevin Hart. I don't remember what that movie is, but like, that's what I picture. Like You have the, the strongest clan the, the family is like looking at Kevin Hart, like you know, Kevin's looking up like this. Like, I, I just imagine uh, the frustration at this. And here's why they're frustrated. The rock clan, if you will, looks and says, why didn't you let us in on this? Why, didn't, why are you just now calling? You just want me to cut them off? 
Like, you just want me to step in and, and like, mop things up for you? Why would you wait to call us in? Don't you know who I am? We wanted in on the action, and all you asked us to do is to cut them off. Like, they're angry. We see right here in chapter 8, they argued violently with Gideon. Now, I think, a a side note, this isn't like the, the main thrust of the texture of the text here, but I think as a side note this morning, we can see how Gideon responds and learn some very practical application. Gideon, up to this point, has been trusting the Lord. He's been humbly submitting himself and trusting in God's bigger picture, the bigger story at play, and now he's confronted, honestly, for the first time by some big dudes, and they're friendlies. Like, remember, the Israelite. But they're angry. And how does Gideon respond? Gideon, I don't remember what verse it was, but he says, what have I done compared to you? Maybe it's verse 2. What have I done compared to you? Like, they're coming at him, his own, his own family, if you will, coming at him saying, man, why are you doing this? They argue violently, and Gideon says, you're right. What have, what have I done compared to you? I think Gideon knows his place, and out of humility, he gives a gentle response. So if I can just encourage you in those times where you're like wanting to go to war, either with your spouse or your coworker or your boss, Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Like I think we can look at that and think, Gideon knew, Kevin Hart to the rock, like, yeah, I'm going to take a step back on this one. I'm going to trust the Lord, kind of bit his tongue maybe in humility. When they criticize Gideon, he swallows his pride. He gives this gentle answer, and what happens? We see the text. Their anger against him subsided. These men were glory hungry. If you remember back early on, God gave them the warning that they're going to be their own worst enemy. The Israelites will be their own worst enemy. They were glory hungry. Gideon knew where the glory belonged at this point in the story. Like He knew it went to God. He took a step back basically just said, hey, I'm, take it easy. I hear what you're saying. What have I done? Nothing. What have you done? Everything. But remember, it's actually the Lord's done everything. So instead of stirring up anger, Gideon responds wisely. He moves on to pursue the kings of Midian. Now, as the story moves on, we see a shift in Gideon. I wish I could say it ends well for him, but, but at that moment, remember, he's man. He just got confronted by his own tribe, his own people, if you will, friendlies. Um, He responded humbly. I think I can speak to all of us. You know that feeling, right? Like you just feel like your your pride is tested at that moment. You feel a little angst for him. In the moment of wise speech where he turns away anger, I think it's there we see something in Gideon's own heart that begins to show. Let's look at verse 4 through 9. Gideon pursues the kings of Midian. He and his men, they're exhausted. They come to the town of Succoth, tired and hungry, looking for some food, but they're met with the same response as the Ephraimites. And what happens? These men show little gratitude for Gideon. Not only for Gideon, but also for his men. Essentially, they've looked at him and said, hey, what, where are our enemies? You're asking for something from us. Where are our enemies? Do you even have them? And since Gideon hadn't captured the kings yet, the enemies, they knew what that means. They, they knew that if they step in and help Gideon and their enemies actually override Gideon, then, then the enemies are going to come back. 
anybody who helps Gideon. They're going to come back for them. They basically said, hey, don't look for any sympathy from us. Move on. Gideon moves on. He gets the same response. Why didn't you ask for help earlier? Is what this tribe says. No one's willing to step in and care for Gideon and his men at this moment. Like, I can only imagine God's chosen man, empowered. I can only imagine how frustrated he is, growing tired and weary. And I, I can only imagine him saying something like, does anybody see what I'm doing? Like, where, where's everybody else? God's called me. Does anybody see all the things that I'm doing? No one is showing any respect to me. I'm the one sacrificing everything. I'm the one doing this, and nobody is giving me the respect for what I've done. I think it's interesting, if you remember back to the dream. The bread is what defeated the enemies in the dream. And what is Gideon looking for here? He's looking for bread to feed his own men and himself, and he can't get any respect for the things he is doing. I don't think he's necessarily looking for bread as much as he's looking for his own glory and respect. There's no glory for him or any of his efforts. God had ordained him, again, as leader. He's the man. He's been placed in power. No one recognizes him for the things that he is doing. It's interesting to me to see this full story at play. Weak and scared Gideon, God calls valiant warrior. I can't do this, God. God supernaturally gives his assurance of victory. And now we see the same man respond very differently. Look at me. I'm the man. Give me the respect that I'm due. And I got good news for us that this is not the way of our better judge, Jesus. Like Jesus actually shows us another way by giving up his power. And serving, he became the most influential man who's ever lived. Jesus is not only our better example, he's actually our only true savior. He's the better Moses, the better Aaron, and he's the better Gideon. Gideon seemed to be extremely obedient and filled with faith in the extreme moments of battle. Like if you, you track his, his process over the last two, three weeks, you see he's very obedient, filled uh, with obedience and faith in those extreme moments, like those aha moments, he's got it. The thing that seems to be getting the character of his heart, however, is the routine daily living. Battle doesn't seem to be waging war in his heart as we see his response. What is waging war in his heart is the idol of power and control. We've talked a little bit about idols along the way. They give us a sense of being in control. They're very sneaky. When we bow down to idols, we actually feel like they're bowing down to us, but in, in return, we're bowing down to them. They, they give us that sense of being in control. And I think it's at this point that Gideon desires power and control and respect more than he desires the victory over his enemies. Like his own Israelite people won't give him the glory. They won't even give him bread. He's asking for bread. I think the most painful time in our lives are the times in which our idols are being threatened or removed from us. 
He's asking for this. Give me what I want. Look at what I've done. And he's not getting that response. And so I think those painful times where our idols are being threatened or removed, it's so painful because it's in those moments where we don't realize Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. He ain't getting no respect from them. He can't even get his own guys. And he looks up, and, and, and I just have to wonder if he's like, not only can I not get respect from them, God, where are you in this moment? Like when the dust settles and the idols leave us broken and busted, it's there that Jesus actually moves towards us. Now, we don't see that play out uh, in, in Gideon's favor. We see him keep going down this cycle and it not ending good. We'll get there. But in, in our life, it doesn't have to, to be that way for us. You don't have to keep bowing down to the idols of comfort and control and approval. You don't have to keep doing that. The better way is to bow down to Jesus who defeated all of those idols, crushed the head of the serpent, and looks at you and says, I'm, I love you. How you are, I love you. I'm for you. Who protects you and leads you and guides you. We don't have to bow down to those idols. And we'll see what happens with Gideon's story as we continue to bow down. But I think it's possible to say Back to what I said at the beginning, it's possible to say that God is king and live like you are the king. You can honor God in some very courageous action like Gideon did, but what about your everyday rhythms of life? What does that say about where God's at? Do you live as king? When your idol, or comfort or of con- when your idol of comfort or control or power get threatened, is God still king? Or do you operate as a furious king who demands his own glory like Gideon? Quote from J.D. Greer, he says, Who are we that we should receive praise? We are created, God is creator. We are always the recipients, he is always the giver. We must fight to remember that every blessing, every strength, every joy, every victory, and all of our wealth, wisdom, and worth is from him. He is the fountain of all goodness. This means that we must cultivate this habit of giving praise. Practicing gratitude is what I said a few weeks ago. This habit of giving praise to him for every good thing, big or small. When gratitude is the knee-jerk reaction to the graces God bestows on us, we cease competing with God for his glory. Entitlement says, I've deserved this. Pride says, I've done this. Gratitude says, I've received this. We have received God's grace and his goodness in our life. Why do we continue to bow down and say things like we deserve it or I've done this? God's hungry to show off his power and fame and glory. Are we more hungry for our glory or for his? Let's move on. Gideon's response, he's full of anger, much different than response with the powerful tribe of Ephraim, he basically tells these two tribes who refuse to show him honor and respect, he says, hey, I'm coming for you. When he captures the enemies, he's coming for them next. He says, I will tear your flesh and I will tear down this tower. For the sake of his own glory, we see Gideon, once motivated by God, totally pivots, now motivated by vengeance, anger, and being disrespected. 
And then verse 10 through 12, in the next few verses, we see this going uh, pursuit of the enemy. The enemies fled. Okay, they fled to Kakor, which is about 100 miles east of the Dead Sea. They feel like they've landed at home. It's close to their home. They feel like they've got a uh, home field advantage, if you will. They've lost some men, but they still were looking at about 15,000 soldiers compared to Gideon's 300. Gideon shows up, as we see, and, and he surprises them. And in this, he captures their two kings. And then that next section, verse 13 through 17, we see Gideon. He returns back, just like he said he would, to the two tribes... And in that, they capture a young man of one of the tribes, and Gideon begins to interrogate him, basically saying, hey, give up your leaders. I want to know who I'm supposed to go to because I'm coming for him." And he went, and he taught them a lesson, if you will. Gideon had captured the kings, and he brings them back into his own people who wouldn't give him, deem him the respect and honor that he felt he deserved. He comes back, and he says, I'm going to show them a lesson. I'm going to do what I told them I would do. He knocked down their tower just as he said he would do. He took them to the wilderness and beat them. But here, after he knocks down the tower, we see uh, his punishment actually goes a little bit further. He ends up killing his own like men, like not his tribe, but he kills this other, the men of this other tribe. I'm talking about the same team, Israelites. He kills them. Like we've, we've gone downhill really fast with Gideon. Like things were looking really good. There's something about that pride that creeps in, and it gets bad really quick. Give me what I want. Give me what I feel I deserve, and when I don't get it, I'm going to teach him a lesson. How many of us parent like that? Give me the respect I deserve. I put that food on that table. You pay me rent. Whatever, however you argue at the house. I don't say that, to be very clear. You shouldn't say that either. Um, but think about that, how we, we parent. How many times have I, oh, man, it's for a whole other thing, but I, I've messed up in parenting so many times because of this. I feel disrespected, and I'm going to teach him a lesson. Six-year-old, what am I teaching him? That I demand glory and honor and respect? Or am I teaching them grace that says and moves towards them and says, hey, this is how you made me feel when you did that. But more than that, that's actually disrespecting and, and, and this is what it does to the Lord. Those are teaching opportunities. How do you parent in this? So from verse 13 to 17, we see Gideon do some terrible things. In the next few verses, 18 to 21, we find out a little bit more about the heart of Gideon. So in his interrogation, in his beating of the leaders of one tribe and knocking down the tower and actually killing men of the other tribe, the kings that he captured, his, his actual enemies, he finds out that they had murdered, executed several Israelites beforehand, which happened to be Gideon's blood brothers. So now, this narrator doesn't have to do this. Like, if you think about judges, we... We see judges rule, and then there's like 40 years of peace, and then Israelites do what was right in their own eyes. Here we actually get this played out, like this, this terrible sequence. We see Gideon, that like there's now vengeance in this blood. Like this was personal. He finds this out, and it becomes super personal. Keller says in his commentary, Gideon's ruthless, remarkable pursuit has been motivated less by a desire to complete the deliverance of God's people. 
So less about God's will and more by a drive for personal vengeance, for the honor of his own family. This is why Gideon asks Jether, his oldest son, to kill them. He wants to humiliate these kings in front of everybody. You didn't give me the respect. I've got these two kings, our enemies here, and not only do I have them, I'm going to ask my son to execute them. Keller says he wants to humiliate these kings by having them killed by a mere boy. Now, in the end, you can read through that, Gideon actually performs the execution himself. His son says, man, I'm not going to do this. The victory is complete, if you will, and we see again the depths of wickedness in Gideon's own heart. What happens? He takes the trophies of victory, and in his glory, hunger, hungry heart, he returns home. Like, before we jump into that last section, do you see the danger of success here? Like, I think success is a, a beautiful thing. Like, you can use that for God's glory. But do you see the danger of it? How possible it is to say that God is king and live like you are the king? I mean, that's, this is Gideon's story. Over time, his desire for respect and honor, which led to his violent and bitter rage, when he failed to be given what he thinks he deserves. Like Gideon's story shows that his success is actually the cause of his biggest character flaw. Gideon, over time, becomes addicted to and dependent on his success and power. At all costs, I'm going to prove a point to these people. At all costs, I'm going to let my children know who's boss of this house. At all costs... I'm going to run over whatever employee i got to do to get to this promotion. At all costs, I'm going to get the glory. Back in chapter 7, Gideon knew his own weakness. He knew that the only way he'd see victory was through the grace of God. Like, he knew that. And here we are, just one chapter later, Gideon's bowing down to the idol of success and power, and the promise of honor and glory that it's going to bring him. I will say this as many times as I can. Idols will always overpromise and underdeliver. Always. Gideon forgot who called him. He forgot who equipped him. He forgot who gave him the victory to begin with. This is no different than the times we believe we can save ourselves. Like everything about our salvation and anything good that's going to come from me, any success that I have ever had is never from myself. Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is a gift from God, not from works, so that no man may boast, for we are created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God had already prepared in advance for us to do. Like I, I think... We need this not just when we fail, but a lot of times much more when we succeed. Are we more hungry for his glory or for our own? In closing, as the chapter comes to a close, we see the terrible consequences when we become glory hungry for ourselves. God made Gideon the new Moses back in chapter 6, right? The new leader, the new judge, and now Gideon makes himself the new Aaron. He takes everyone's gold and he makes an idol. God moves him from fearful boy to valiant warrior, and then next what happens? Gideon takes himself in self-delusion. He moves himself from warrior to now king. 
And that's how this section closes. Doing what was right in his own eyes. And y'all, it's not just him. What does it say? They all prostituted themselves. He leads all of his people to do the same. My dad used to say, you're getting too big for your britches, boy. You know, when pride would start to come up or when I'd say, Dad, I got a, you know, 350 batting average or when I accomplished something, he was very quick to remind me of two things. Pride comes before the fall. And then my favorite was, you're getting too big for your britches, which means pride comes before the fall. Like you're starting to think a little bit too much about yourself. Actually, I never thought about what it means, but anyways, uh, that's what it meant. It's just one of those things that you just got. Pride comes before the fall. And as the story goes, the people, they look to Gideon. They want him to be king. Now, what's interesting, real quick, about them wanting him to be king, the judge was appointed to actually bring the people back to giving glory to God. To bring people back to living under God's kingship. God's own people now want to appoint a king in Gideon so that they can be ruled by man and not God. Slippery slope. Keller, to sum this up, verse 23 is really the last time that Gideon remembers who God is and who he is. Ironically and tragically, he almost immediately contradicts what he has just said. He has refused to be their king because that position and honor belong to God alone, but then he starts to assume the honor due to a king. He asks for this financial reward for their deliverance. He asks them to bring all of your plundered wealth. Give me some of it. And he takes it home. He builds a statue, temple, whatever, ehod, whatever you want to envision that is, which is actually due to the honor of the king. And he self-appoints himself king. The deliverer delivers them from the Midianites but leads them into idolatry. He's the man, and Gideon has now used God. He's now used God to the self-appointed position of king instead of using the position God gave him to serve and be used of by God. It's possible to say that God is king but to live like we're king. Are you more hungry for his glory or for your own? Lord, we uh, just come before you this morning thanking you for the opportunity we have, trusting that your spirit is working in the lives of your people at this moment, meeting us where we're each at. God, I, I don't know where that's at for everybody, but I do, I do know you're moving you're drawing people to yourself. But I, I also know just with my own story that you, you are the better solution. I have tried to be Savior. And I've failed miserably. I don't not only disappoint others, I disappoint my own self. I don't even live up to my own standards. And then the times that I've actually said you are king, but functionally lived as if I was king, I've failed miserably there.
Lord, you are king and you will receive all glory and honor. In your kindness, would you lead us to repentance this morning? Would you open up our eyes to the way we parent, to the way we love and serve sacrificially our, our spouse, how we treat our employees? Would you give us a new mind, mindset of, of what that needs to look like? And Lord, would we just open, open hands? Would you just do what you can do this morning in our hearts? You're kind in your kindness and your graciousness would lead us to repentance. Lord, and if there's somebody here who's never tasted and seen that you are good, they've never received your gift of grace. They've earned and they've fought for and they've strived for and they find themselves helpless and restless and tired and weary. God, would they throw in the towel of self and pick up the riches of Christ that you've done for us? Would you give them new hearts to see you in all of your grace and mercy and love? Would you save friends today? We love you, Lord. We're here, ready and willing to, to move if you, as you tell us to move, to wait, to sit, to listen. In this response time, would you do a work? In Jesus' name, amen.